Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? The Lonesome Place by August Derleth. You, who sit in your houses of nights. You, who sit in the theatres. You, who are gay at dances and parties. All you, who are enclosed by four walls. You, have no conception of what goes on outside in the dark. In the lonesome places. And there are so many of them, all over. In the country, in the small towns, in the cities. If you were out in the evenings in the night, you would know about them. You would pass them and wonder, perhaps. And if you were a small boy, you might be frightened. Frightened the way Johnny Newell and I were frightened. The way thousands of small boys from one end of the country to the other are being frightened when they have to go out alone at night, past lonesome places, dark and lightless, sombre and haunted. I want you to understand that if it hadn't been for the lonesome place at the grain elevator, the place with the big old trees and the sheds up close to the sidewalk and the piles of lumber, if it hadn't been for that place, Johnny Newell and I would never have been guilty of murder. I say it, even if there is nothing the law can do about it. They cannot touch us, but it is true, and I know, and Johnny knows. But we never talk about it. We never say anything. It's just something we keep here, behind our eyes, deep in our thoughts, where it is a fact which is lost among thousands of others, but no less there. Something we know beyond Cavill. It goes a long way back, but as time goes, perhaps it's not so long. We were young, we were little boys in the small town, Johnny lived three houses away and across the street from me, and both of us lived in the block west of the grain elevator. We were never afraid to go past the lonesome place together, but we were not often together. Sometimes one of us had to go that way alone, and sometimes the other. I went that way most of the time. There was no other except to go far around, because that was the straight way downtown, and I had to walk there when my father was too tired to go. In the evenings it would happen like this, my mother would discover that she had no sugar or salt or bologna, and she would say, Steve, you go downtown and get it. Your father's too tired. I would say, don't want to. She would say, you go. I would say, I-, I can go in the morning before school. She would say, you go now. I don't want to hear another word out of you. Here's the money. And I would have to go. Going down was never quite so bad, because most of the time there was still some afterglow in the West, and a kind of pale light lay there, a luminousness, like part of the day lingering there. And all around town you could hear the kids hollering in the last hour they had to play, and you felt somehow not alone. You could go down into that dark place under the trees, and you would never think of being lonesome. But when you came back, that was different. When you came back, the afterglow was gone. If the stars were out, you could never see them for the trees. And though the street lights were on, the old-fashioned lights arched over the crossroads. Not a ray of them penetrated the lonesome place near to the elevator. There it was, half a block long, black as black could be, dark as the deepest night, 
with the shadows of the trees making it a solid place of darkness, with the faint glow of light where a street light pooled at the end of the street. Far away it seemed, and that other glow behind where the other corner light lay. And when you came that way, you walked slower and slower. Behind you lay the brightly lit stores. All along the way there had been houses with lights in the windows and music playing and voices of people sitting to talk on their porches. But up there, ahead of you, there was a lonesome place with no house nearby. And up beyond it, the tall, dark, grain elevator, gaunt and forbidding. The lonesome place of trees and sheds and lumber, in which anything might be lurking. Anything at all. The lonesome place where you were sure that something haunted the darkness, waiting for the moment and the hour and the night when you came through to burst forth from its secret place and leap upon you, tearing you and rending you and doing the unmentionable things before it had done for you. That was the lonesome place. By day it was oak and maple trees over a hundred years old, low enough so that you could almost touch the big spreading limbs. It was the sheds and lumber piles which were seldom disturbed. It was a sidewalk and long grass never mowed or kept down until late fall when somebody burned it off. It was a shady place in the hot summer days where some cool air always lingered. You were never afraid of it by day. But by night it was a different place. For then it was lonesome, away from sight or sound, a place of darkness and strangeness, a place of terror for little boys haunted by a thousand fears. And every night coming home from town it happened like this. I would walk slower and slower the closer I got to the lonesome place. I would think of every way around it. I would keep hoping somebody would come along so that I could walk with him. Mr Newell, maybe, or old Mrs Potter, who lived farther up the street, or Reverend Beisler, who lived at the end of the block beyond the grain elevator. But nobody ever came. At this hour it was too soon after supper for them to go out, or already out, too soon for them to return. So I walked slower and slower until I got to the edge of the lonesome place, and then I ran as fast as I could, sometimes with my eyes closed. Oh, I, I knew I was there all right. I knew there was something in that dark, lonesome place. Perhaps it was the bogeyman. Sometimes my grandmother spoke of him, of how he waited in dark places for bad boys and girls. Perhaps it was an ogre. I knew about ogres in the books of fairy tales. Perhaps it was something else. Something worse. I ran, I ran hard. Every blade of grass, every leaf, every twig that touched me was its hand reaching for me. The sound of my footsteps slapping the sidewalk were its steps pursuing. The hard breathing which was my own became its breathing. In its frantic struggle to reach me, to rend and to tear me, to imbue my soul with terror. I would burst out of that place like a flurry of wind, fly past the gaunt elevator and not pause until I was safe in the yellow glow of the familiar streetlight. And then, in a few steps, I was home. And my mother would say, For the Lord's sake, have you been running on a hot night like this? I would say. I hurried. You didn't have to hurry that much. I didn't need it till breakfast time. And I would say, I could have got in in the morning. I could have run down before breakfast. Next time, that's what I'm going to do. Nobody would pay any attention. Some nights, Johnny had to go downtown too. Things then weren't the way they are today when every woman makes a ritual of afternoon shopping and seldom forgets anything. In those days, they didn't go downtown so often, and when they did, 
They had such lists, they usually forgot something. And after Johnny and I had been through the lonesome place on the same night, we compared notes next day. Did you see anything? he would ask. No, but I heard it, I would say. I felt it, he would whisper tensely. It's got big, flat, clawed feet. You know what has got the ugliest feet around? Sure, one of those stinking yellow soft-shell turtles. It's got feet like that. Oh, ugly and soft and sharp claws. I saw one out of the corner of my eye, he would say. Did you see its face? I would ask. It ain't got no face. Cross my heart and hope to die. There ain't no face. That's worse than if there was one. Oh, it was a horrible beast. Not an animal. Not a man that lurked in the lonesome place and came forth predatorily at night, waiting there for us to pass. It grew like this out of our mutual experiences. We discovered that it had scales and a great long tail like a dragon. It breathed from somewhere, hot as fire, but it had no face and no mouth in it, just a horrible opening in its throat. It was as big as an elephant, but it didn't look like anything so friendly. It belonged there, in the lonesome place. It would never go away. That was its home, and it had to wait for its food to come to it. The unwary boys and girls who had to pass through the lonesome place at night. How I tried to keep from going near the lonesome place after dark. Why can't Maidie go? I would ask. Maidie's too little, Mother would answer. I'm not so big. Oh, shush, you're a big boy now. You're going to be seven years old. Just think of it. I don't think seven's old, I would say. I didn't, either. Seven wasn't nearly old enough to stand up against what was in the lonesome place. Your Sears Roebuck pants are long ones, she would say. I don't care about any old Sears Roebuck pants. I don't want to go. I want you to go. You never get up early enough in the morning. But I will. I promise I will. I promise, Ma, I would cry out. Tomorrow morning, it'll be a different story. Now, you go. That was the way it went every time. I had to go. And Maidie was the only one who guessed. Freddy cat, she would whisper. Even she never really knew. She never had to go through the lonesome place after dark. They kept her at home. She never knew how something could lie up in those old trees, lie right along those old limbs across the sidewalk and drop down without a sound, clawing and tearing, something without a face, with ugly clawed feet like a soft-shelled turtle's, with scales and a tail like a dragon, something as big as a house, all black, like the darkness in that place. But Johnny and I knew. It, it almost got me last night, he would say, his voice low, looking anxiously out of the woodshed where we sat, as if he might hear us. Gee, I'm glad it didn't, I would say. What was it like? Big and black and awful black. I looked round when I was running and all of a sudden there wasn't any light way back at the other end. Then I knew it was coming. I ran like everything to get out of there. It was almost on me when I got away. Look there! And he would show me a rip in his shirt where a claw had come down. And you? He would ask excitedly, big-eyed. What about you? I was back behind the lumber piles when it came through, I said. I could just feel it waiting. I was running, but it got right up. You look, there's a pile of lumber tipped over there. And we would walk down into the lonesome place in midday and look. Sure enough, there would be a pile of lumber tipped over. And we would look to where something had been lying down the grass all pressed down. 
Sometimes we would find a handkerchief and wonder whether it had caught somebody. Then we would go home and wait to hear if anyone was missing, speculating apprehensively all the way home, whether it had got Maidy or Christine or Helen, or any one of the girls in our class or Sunday school, or whether maybe it had got Miss Doyle, the young primary grades teacher who had to walk that way sometimes after supper. But no one was ever reported missing, and the mystery grew. Maybe it had got some stranger who happened to be passing by and didn't know about the thing that lived there in the lonesome place. We were sure it had got somebody. Some night, I won't come back, you'll see, I'd say. Oh, don't be silly, my mother would say. What do grown-up people know about the things boys are afraid of? Oh, hickory switches and such like, they know that. But what about what goes on in the mines when they have to come home alone at night through the lonesome places? What do they know about lonesome places where no light from the street corner ever comes? What do they know about the place and time when the boy is very small and very alone and the night is as big as the town and the darkness is the whole world? When grown-ups are big old people who cannot understand anything, no matter how plain. A boy looks up and out, but he can't look very far when the trees bend down over and press close, when the sheds rear up along one side and the trees on the other, when the darkness lies like a cloud along the sidewalk and the arc lights are far, far away. No wonder, then, that things grow in the darkness of lonesome places the way it grew, in that dark place near the grain elevator. No wonder a boy runs like the wind until his heartbeats sound like a drum and push up to suffocate him. You're as white as a sheet, mother would say sometimes. You've been running again. You don't have to run, my father would say. Take it easy. I ran, I would say. I wanted the worst way to say I had to run and to tell them why I had to. But I knew they wouldn't believe me any more than Johnny's parents believed him when he told them, as he did once. He got a licking with a strap and had to go to bed. I never got licked. I never told them. But now it must be told. Now it must be set down. For a long time we forgot about the lonesome place. We grew older and we grew bigger. We went on through school into high school and somehow we forgot about the thing in the lonesome place. The place never changed. The trees grew older. Sometimes the lumber piles were bigger or smaller. Once the sheds were painted red like blood. Seeing them that way the first time I remembered, then I forgot again. We took to playing baseball and basketball and football. We began to swim in the river and to date the girls. We never talked about the thing in the lonesome place anymore. And when we went through there at night, it was like something forgotten that lurked back in the corner of the mind. We thought of something we ought to remember, but never could quite remember. That was the way it seemed, like a memory locked away far away in childhood. We never ran through that place, and sometimes it was even a good place to walk through with a girl because she was always snuggled up close and said how spooky it was there under the overhanging trees. But even then we never lingered there. Not exactly lingered. We didn't run through there, but we walked without faltering or loitering, no matter how pretty a girl she was. The years went past, and we never thought about the lonesome place again. We never thought how there would be other little boys going through it at night, running with fast-beating hearts, breathless with terror, anxious for the safety of the arc light beyond the margin of the shadow which confined the dweller in that place, 
the light-fearing creature that haunted the dark, like so many terrors dwelling in similar lonesome places, in the cities and small towns and countrysides all over the world, waiting to frighten little boys and girls, waiting to invade them with horror and unshakable fear, waiting for something more. Three nights ago, little Bobby Jeffers was killed in that lonesome place. He was all mauled and torn and partly crushed, as if something big had fallen on him. Johnny, who was on the village board, went to look at the place, and after he had been there, he telephoned me to go too, before other people walked there. I went down and saw the marks too. It was just as the coroner had said, only not an animal of some kind, as he put it. Something with a dragging tail, with scales, with great clawed feet, and I knew. It had no face. I knew too that Johnny and I were guilty. We had murdered Bobby Jeffers, because the thing that killed him was the thing Johnny and I had created out of our childhood fears and left in that lonesome place to wait for some scared little boy at some minute in some hour during some dark night. A little boy who, like fat Bobby Jeffers, couldn't run as fast as Johnny and I could run. And the worst is not that there's nothing to do, but that the lonesome place is being changed. The village is cutting down some of the trees now, removing the sheds and putting up a street light in the middle of that place. It will not be dark and lonesome any longer. And the thing that lives there will have to go somewhere else where people are unsuspecting to some other lonesome place in some other small town or city or countryside where it'll wait, as it did here, for some frightened little boy or girl to come along, waiting in the dark and the lonesomeness. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? So that was A Lonesome Place by August Derleth, or Derleth, published in 1962. It was a request by Stephen Shipman, who is a Patreon, long-standing Patreon and supporter of this podcast. So thank you, Stephen. It was a good story. I'm familiar with the story. Uh, I remember reading it probably in a collection of kind of Lovecraftian stories. So you, you may know that Patreon's and we take together with other paid supporters on YouTube, members, uh, Apple podcast supporters, and Substack supporters. There's quite a few. Well, each of those gets the opportunity to make a request for a story. And when we first started, when I first started, this seemed n- no big deal. But there's now, we take them all together, possibly 300 plus people. And like if I do 300 story requests, just do the maths. It's going to be years before I finish them. And and being me, I want to do it anyway. I want to do my own stories as well. So I need more content. I need more content. But thank you for Stephen for being a really great supporter of the podcast with his comments and, and you know, unfailing support. So it was a good story. I'm going to say something about August Delath and then I'm going to just kind of fizz off on different things that have occurred to me while we're talking about the story. So we'll say something about Derleth himself. So he was uh, born in 1909 and lived until 1971 and died age only 62, which is what's happened to me next year. I mean, maybe not dying, but certainly becoming 62. So he grew up in Sauk City, Wisconsin, 
and he had a relatively normal parents. He went to a Catholic high school and a public high school. I'm not sure if he was Catholic. Mm, could have been. Could have been German Catholic. South Germans, you know, often Catholic. Uh, he liked reading the most and saved all his money so he could buy books. And by the time he died, his personal library was 12,000 volumes, which is, mine isn't quite that, but it's, it's still too many. Oh, don't let's start on that discussion. Can you have too many books? Yeah, probably you can so that little thing told me I hadn't switched my phone off. And I, I'm not going to edit it out because it, it prompts me to say something. Remember emails? I remember when emails first came out, it was very exciting. You'd get a, an email from somebody you knew. It was like a letter. And then sometimes it'd be from uh, people you wanted to hear from. And then it became invaded by people trying to, first of all, sell you stuff that you weren't massively interested in. Seth Godin talks about this as interruption marketing. And, and basically most modern marketing is like, you're actually here to listen to this story, but oh my God, there's an, there's an advert. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reading my emails. Oh, yeah, and so they interrupt you. I'm forgetting a lot of things today, aren't I? I forgot to put that, this recording on solo, so um, it just had uh, some music come in. You probably recognise the music. So yeah, emails have been taken over by people, and then scammers. And then, so you, really, they're almost worthless now. We don't open them. I've got like, like 8,000 unopened emails, and most people are the same. And then we had, uh, we had, we started to use Messenger. And then they cottoned on, they could send you adverts through Messenger and then texts. So now most of my texts aren't from people I know, they're from people trying to sell me nonsense. And that was Costa Coffee reminding me to, you've got this Santa. I guess they're playing with the conceit that uh, I am Santa today, which I'm not. And uh, they are suggesting that I go and take a break at their Costa Coffee, and they're very helpful if I click on it, point out on maps where it is, uh, and it's a drive-through, Unit 6 London Road, and they're suggesting that I go to the Costa drive-through. I'm not going to. I don't want to. But, you know, they take over, taking over your emails, they're taking over your texts. Now they're taking over, you get WhatsApps from people. So where are we going to be able to have just a conversation where we're not interrupted by people trying to sell us stuff we don't, don't actually want? <laughs> okay, if you get YouTube, I pay for YouTube so I don't get the adverts, okay? It depends if you're able to pay for it, I'd get that. And we've, we've talked about adverts on, on the podcast and things like that. Nothing is free, I totally understand that. Don't ever think that anything is free. YouTube is not free. You pay for it in some way. Either you pay cash or you, you, you pay with your time uh, or your clicking button to click through the adverts, but nothing's free, okay? So I get it, but I just don't want these. I don't want all, every every avenue of communication invaded by people trying to sell me stuff. There was a, a, a science fiction book called The Stone Man, and it was set in the near future. And the interesting thing was it didn't focus on flying ships and going to Mars. It focused on the fact that they, we'd got um, things wired into our heads that connected us to the internet, and that will happen. And uh, we were just bombarded everywhere we went. We were bombarded with sales messages. If you walk down the street, all the shops log into you and they're booming you in your brain uh it, it would not be hell anyway um i can't remember where i was talking about august derleth and what we see is when we look at him on, on a picture he's a very handsome man very very he looks like he could have been uh, a film star f- um playing in second world war black and white movies of american air force pilots actually american navy pilots flying from aircraft carriers that's exactly what he looks like Anyway, he, he wrote his first story when he was 13. 
it took him four years and 40 rejected stories, three years, 40 rejected stories before he sold his first story, Bats, Belfry to Weird Tales magazine. You remember in those days we were all the you know, pulps, amazing stories, weird tales. Um, and of course that was Lovecraft and this is his connection. He's very associated with Lovecraft and editing. So when he, he went to the University of Wisconsin and he got his BA, I'm guessing in English, and he worked as assistant uh, editor for Fawcett Publications Mystic Magazine, which was based in Minneapolis when he was there. Uh, he was very, very active at lots of things. He started a club for young people in the 30s called the Rangers Club. He was interested in nature. He, he, he published books of nature poetry and nature stories. He started local men's club and a parent-teacher association. He was a parole officer, a clerk, and president of local school board. He also taught... When did he have time for doing all these things? At the University of Wisconsin about American regional literature and was contributing editor for Outdoors magazine. So we see this theme of the outdoors. You know, he said at one point, he writes very quickly, between 750,000 and a million words a year, and very few of them are pulp. I reckon he probably had ADHD, just saying. I've been writing about that recently because that kind of jipping around all the place and doing everything really fast. And of course, is it a disorder or is it just the way you are? I think it's just the way you are, as long as it's not bugging anybody. He was very successful with it, so let's not um, knock it. This this story was in the Lonesome Places book. The story is called The Lonesome Place, but the collection published in 62 by Arkham House was Lonesome Places. He founded Arkham House Publishing and the purpose of that was to publish the work of H.P. Lovecraft, who had been corresponding with... Lovecraft was a great correspondent. He wrote lots and lots of letters. It Probably Derleth is the man who saved Lovecraft. Probably Lovecraft's work would have just dwindled down, but Derleth and the Arkham House press really, um, really had success with it and pushed it out. There's a claim that he, was, um, he had lifelong, long-term relationships with both men and women. Um, and he was married a couple of times to women. Obviously, it wasn't legal to marry men in those days. I, it always strikes me that this, this kind of subject of people's preferences comes up as if it's... And it's not really germane, is it, to his writing? It's just we have a prurient interest in people's sex lives, I think. So let's talk about the story. First of all, it reminded me... That stories always reference other stories, don't they, once you've read a lot. It reminded me of Ray Bradbury, something wicked this way, comes of young kind of young lads in um, America, not in the cities, but out in the countryside that kind of weird things happen to. So clearly that's why we get that. The, the, also another American story it reminded me of, although the, the feeling is very different, is uh, They Bite by um, Anthony Boucher. It, we've done, I've done um, that one definitely on the podcast. I haven't, I've done various Ray Bradbury's, but not the long Something Wicked This Way comes. Another digression is that I'm thinking of doing two videos a week for the YouTube channel. And on the Mondays, I'm going to do a novel length thing. So I could possibly, do, if I can get away with copyright, blah, 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 and not get arrested and not get cease and desist. I, I, there are various ones that we could do. Haunting of Hill House, Shirley Jackson's, certainly Something Wicked This Way Comes. Very, very lovely story, beautifully written actually as well. Um, just my kind of language, very um, rhetorical and flowery. Anyway, so that be a Monday. I'm doing my own story, um, Unreal City, which is going down really well. It has. It doesn't get as many um, hits as the, as we call them now. We don't call them that anymore. It doesn't get as many views as the, the other people's work. 
but um, uh, it is, you know, it gets about six, seven, eight hundred. It's good, it's good, it's good, and people seem to like it. There's always the one non-liker, and he gets in really quick on all my videos. Within an hour of it coming up, somebody has disliked it. I don't know if it's a bot or it's an actual person who just sits waiting for something to come out from a classic ghost stories, Tony Walker, and go, I hate that man, and, uh, and just hits dislike. I had a guy leave a message to say how he hated everything about the channel. And uh, and he came here very, you know, the music's toxic, the stories, the 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 narrator is contemptuous. Me is full of contempt, which I, if you know me, I'm not really. That's one thing I don't have. But the one thing you learn is people bring their own stuff, don't they? Don't don't think it is really about you because it isn't. Anyway, so it made me laugh that he would come, and I I couldn't help myself. Usually, I try not to respond because it's bad form. But um. I, I said something about, yeah, it's like me and Dunkin' Donuts. I really hate them. So every time I go in for my free donut, I make sure that the staff there know I hate everything about them. Um, but there we are. So where, where, where did that leave us? I don't know. Of course, the other reference, and, and you can see why, of course, is Stranger Things. Small town America kind of cozy. And there's Stephen King stuff in there as well, isn't there? But I think um, that whole... That that whole genre era of supernatural story, Ray Bradbury, August Derleth, Stephen King, spans a few, the generations of the middle to the end, perhaps slightly earlier than the middle, 50s certainly onwards. And this is very much an American dream, isn't it? I think this is a nostalgia that America has, small town America has for itself. There's nothing wrong with that. I like it too. So I find myself uh, feeling great about these things, even though, although... You know, our our upbringing is similar, but it's not the same. You know, Western English-speaking people, probably from Australia, etc., New Zealand, Ireland, have similar um, cultural experiences, but they're not the same. And so there are interesting differences. I was reading an article about Meghan Markle and how she had... This was really interesting, uh, how she had come thinking that... Everybody wanted to be Californian. I love California, don't get me wrong. I'd love to go and certainly have an extended stay there, maybe even live there for a year or two. But um, that everybody wants to be uh, upfront, open, I do me, you know, all this kind of stuff and be very, and, uh, you know, and, and this sort of reticent, ironical reticence, I suppose, of, of the, particularly the, the English is uh, something they want rid of and they want to be more like Californians. And then she thought her message was to come and not be just an English posh girl, which is actually what they wanted, but to be, you know, to, to, to do her. And they definitely didn't want that, you know. Um, they, they, they like being as they are. We like being as we are. Not that I'm an English posh girl. Anyway, not <laughs> let's, anyway, anyway, anyway. It's difficult stuff. So uh, move away from that. So... I, I, and then the other thought was, it reminded me of my own youth when I was a little boy. I maybe said this somewhere. We had an experiment in the, probably, well, it must have been about 68, 69, when I was about seven or so. And we had an experiment where we wouldn't change the clocks in the winter. You know, we'd have daylight saving and then winter time and who knows what. And uh, so we didn't, so it was dark. And we got at the back of the school and there would be St. Mary's Church looming there. Not actually, it's not an old church, a Victorian church uh, on the hill, but it may be built in an older site, I don't know. And we would we would convince ourselves 
Did you see the ghost? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. What was it doing? And we created a ghost out of our imaginations until to all of us it became real. Very much like this. So I think that's what's going on and we're all probably familiar with that process from being young. That this is this is what we do. Not just young people. The whole of society kind of creates things and imagines them. I mean, the, the mortgage rate, for example, is totally made up. Um, it's an, a fictional thing, but we believe behave as if it's real. Um, and, and, and it is real, of course, because we, we treat it as being real. So I guess that's the point of this story. A thing may come from our imaginations, but we treat it as if it's real because it becomes real for us, so, you know. I often, go, again, I'm veering into something slightly more serious, is uh, I, I get people who, most of my patients at work come in with um, a sense of themselves that they're not very good that they're worthless. I guess the ones who think they're fantastic never come and see me, so I'm not saying most people think that. But all of us have, have self-doubts, but these people are really plagued with it, and usually it's because they've had a message early on in their life from somebody that they saw a lot. It could be at school, could be a teacher, could be a parent, could be a, could be a sibling, could be a friend. Um, not much of a friend, though. Um, you can't really t um, choose the others, can you? But, um, yeah, but maybe a friend, eh? And they keep giving you this message, you know, you're no good. And eventually you go, oh, yeah, I'm no good. You don't learn it, it just you just absorb it and it becomes you and you, you adopt that identity. And therefore you then go through life with a belief and that's all it is. It's just a belief. It's a distorted belief, but it's a belief that you are this and you, you feel this way and it has associated emotions, usually depression, anxiety. And then you project that out to the world in everything you do, you, your behavior tells everybody else what you think of yourself, and they treat you like that. So the point is, you can create a reality absolutely by th thinking and feeling that something is real. And another digression, but not unrelated, is the whole idea of um, magical thought forms. So I went through a period 20 years ago reading a lot about this. And even kind of dressing up <laughs> in robes. And I, I got a bad chest from all the incense, actually. I had to go to the doctors. I thought there was something seriously wrong with me. He said, do you keep pigeons? I said, no. Are you a baker? <laughs> I said, no. Um, and he said, you know, and there was basically incense dust on my... So you hippies, be careful. Uh, and anyway, so there was a whole thing about chaos magic in, the, in its heyday was that if, if you concentrate on a, a thought form, you create a reality of something. So, so they, would, uh, they would not worship, um, you know, uh, the Hindu gods or the Celtic gods or the Roman gods or, you know, any others. They would, they would worship um, the dark ones of uh, the great old ones of Lovecraft who are completely fictional. Or they would worship Mickey Mouse and they believed that by just concentrating enough on the reality of these creatures, they could make them real. Uh, and I, I've never done that. Um, I don't know if it can be done, but it's interesting given that this is what the theme of this story is, that this, this was a theme of the creation of magical thought forms in um, chaos magic practice, that if you, if you construct an imaginary creature with enough belief in it, it becomes real, which is related to what I was saying about, you know, if you uh, think you're wonderful, you've been told you're wonderful, you think you're wonderful. You behave as if you're wonderful. You expect wonderfulness. And um, you, and then the world treats you like that. Now, Cristiano Ronaldo, who is 
possibly the most he's the most famous man in the world he's one of the richest and he he was interviewed and uh, this somebody was saying you know everybody over the world is you are number and he was going yes of course it's normal and it wasn't that was just that was his reality because he he has a tremendous skill um which helps because then people do tell you you're wonderful but his reality was he was wonderful therefore wonderful things happened to him i'm sure rotten things happened to him as well but but if you if you believe that you're no good and never was no good, that was an uh, intentional grammatical mistake, by the way. I'll just say in case you thought I'd lost it. So, yeah, that's it. Think you're wonderful. And of course, other people may then say, who don't like this idea at all, who, who want a real world that's real with real things in it that are objective and cannot be changed by subjective thinking and this, this and that, you know. Some people want, you know, a dog to be a dog. Well, a dog isn't a dog. A dog's an idea. I mean, there is a thing there that it is that does dog things. Or we call them dog things, you know. But the idea of a dog is made up. I remember when I was um, teaching languages in another career, um, people would be, you know, they, the people who spoke English would think, well, dog is what, it's dog. And, you know, um, perro or uh, chien or qui or whatever, whatever word you've got for dog in, your lang- in another language, they were kind of not real. The, the people who spoke Spanish or, you know, Italian or Russian w- really knew it was a dog because dog is what it was. Those letters and those words are what it is. Um, and then you mistake the world of concepts for, the, for what might be going on underneath. So I believe in a real world, of course I do, but I think we get lost in our concepts and I think we live mostly in our concepts, including the concepts of whether we're wonderful or not. Anyway, that was a a bit of a ramble, that one. Um, hope you... <laughs> I keep doing it because you keep saying, oh, yeah, it's okay. So I will keep doing it. Anyway, what's my call to action? And what do I want you to do? Mm, mm, I want you to check out my Haunted Places website where I do real so-called real ghost stories. I've been enjoying researching the stories and a couple of us have got into it like a detective story. So, um, yeah, check that out. I will put a link in the show notes. Yeah, go over to that. Go over to that. Anyway, Happy New Year. By the time you read this, it'll be long past New Year, but it's actually Christmas Eve I'm recording this. I'm all very confused about dates. But I've got to go and get some carrots because I I forgot to get them yesterday. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts and on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you. Which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it. So you get my love and gratitude. And also, 
you get access to a big backlog of stories and members-only stories. Every month I do at least one members-only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.